Good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen. We say this, and we repeat it at Easter. And maybe, as I've been thinking and preparing this week, maybe we just need to say that every week as a reminder, not just once a year. Today is Easter. It's the traditional uh, celebration of Christ's, not just death, which we looked at on Good Friday, but His resurrection from the dead. And we choose today, even though every time we gather, we rehearse the gospel. Every time we gather together, we confess the truth that Jesus died and rose again. But today we take just a little extra focus to look at the reality and the power of the resurrection. The central hope, the anchor for our faith is that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that He rose again, conquering death and securing eternal life for all those who have faith in Him. We celebrate that death could not hold Jesus. That in His death is the death of death. And in His resurrection is our life, eternal and abundant. And so for just a few minutes this morning... Let's look at what it means that Christ has died and has raised again from the dead. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to read from Romans chapter 4 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 13 and we'll read through Romans chapter 5, verse 2. It should be on the screen as well. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be granted to all his offspring." Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in his faith, in faith, excuse me, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans, excuse me, our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, the central idea of Romans chapter 4 is that God made a promise to Abraham, and that through Abraham, God was going to make for himself a nation. And the Apostle Paul says that Abraham believed that God would fulfill his promise. He trusted that even though he couldn't see it, even though, as Paul says, he was as good as dead because he was nearly a hundred. I don't know how you feel about that. If you feel like you're closer to a hundred than you are to zero, maybe you're, you take uh, offense at that comment. But Abraham was old. His wife was barren for their entire life. And yet he believed that God would fulfill his promise. He didn't know the name of Jesus, Abraham, but he believed in him. Verse 22, Paul says it was counted to him, counted to Abraham as righteousness, meaning that he had faith that God would be faithful to fulfill everything that he had said. And then in verse 23, Paul continues, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours Also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, uh, excuse me, raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, let's stop there for a second. The promise of God was to make a people for himself through Abraham. He would purify them. He would make them new and clean and his He would wash them and redeem them and bless them so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And it is anchored and tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, on Good Friday, we considered that it was our trespasses, our sins that put Jesus on the cross. He absorbed in his death the just wrath of God for sin and the punishment that we deserve for our unfaithfulness. That's what we remember when we look at the cross. He was delivered up. He was put to death for our trespasses, our transgressions. And, Paul says in Romans 4, and he was raised again from the dead for our justification. That is a big, fantastic word. Justification, as simply as I can say it, meaning to be made right. So not only is our sin paid for, hallelujah, not only is our slate wiped clean, praise the Lord, but more than that, we are actually given righteousness. We are made right. So now it's not just a fresh start. We are actually put into a right position before God. Not merely neutral. But he actually makes us holy. Pardoned from sin and welcomed in, adopted, loved as a son or daughter. It's both. 
uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says this about what it means to be justified and how it works. He goes, we shall grow in grace, but we shall never be more completely pardoned than when we first believed. We shall one day stand before the glorious presence of God in his own sacred courts and see the uh, well-beloved and wear his likeness. But we shall not, even then, saying when we're in his presence, even then be more perfectly forgiven than we are at this present moment. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant that. All of our hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised for our justification. Now look back at verse 16 of Romans chapter 4. He says, this is why it depends on faith, not on our doing, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not just those who are better at keeping the law than others. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Paul says. So to whom is this promise guaranteed? Who gets to take hold of this and say, this belongs to me? Not only to those who uphold the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. And this is something that's incredibly important. And I think we all know this internally. As much as we want to pride ourselves, and some of us more than others, as good rule keepers. I'm a firstborn. It didn't take much for my parents to convince me that I should do something they're telling me to do. The threat of a phone call to the doctor or the police are following us to sit down and get buckled up. These things worked for me as a firstborn because I'm a rule keeper. Some of my younger siblings, not so much. But I'll let them tell that story another day. But if we're honest, and the scriptures bear this out, no matter how good we think we are at rule keeping, we're actually really bad at it. We're really good at rule manipulation. We're really good at finding loopholes and self-justification because I'm not as bad as they are, right? And the scriptures tell us this all the time. There is no one righteous, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know this. And this is why it cannot depend on our keeping of the law in order to obtain for ourselves this righteousness, this goodness, this right standing before God. Because if that were the case, we'd be lost. And we know this, but I think it's good just to to say it. And Paul says it depends on faith. Specifically, faith that Christ's death is sufficient. It's enough to pay the debt of my sin. And faith that his resurrection from the dead is powerful to transform me now in this life. To actually change me from the self-justifying, wicked rule keeper that I try to be. To change me now and is powerful enough. His resurrection is powerful enough to also carry me all the way to the end. If we have faith in Christ like this, then Abraham is our father too, meaning that the promises that God made to him are now ours as well. Therefore, which is why Paul writes it in uh, Romans 5, therefore, in light of the promises of God to Abraham by faith in Christ that are now ours, therefore, 
since we have been justified, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, he says we have two things. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access. Now first, let's look at what it means to have peace with God. The resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he is no longer in the grave, secures peace with God. Now, you might not think of that as a big deal, but it is a big deal. It is a big deal that God does not see us as, our, as his enemy anymore, anymore. This is what it means to have peace with God. The scriptures over and over again make it very clear in many places that our natural state, our natural condition is one of separation from God. Romans 8, chapter 7, the mind is set on the flesh, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Scriptures say we're hostile. Ephesians chapter 2, that we are by nature children of wrath. That's a fun title to own. Ephesians chapter 4, we are alienated. Right? In our natural state, between us and God, there's a chasm. There is no natural peace between God and humanity because of what happened in the garden with our first parents. And we have carried on that legacy since. This is why so often we have this aversion to death. We are scared to death of death as humanity. And not because primarily, I don't think, if we really get under the layers, not because we're scared that this life is all we have, although I think that's part of it. But I think what causes our fear is because we are not completely sure what awaits us on the other side. We strive after so many things to find peace, and yet it seems elusive. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, notice he doesn't say since we hope we are justified, since we are mostly sure, or we're crossing our fingers, I hope it sticks. No, no. Since we have been, said, I could say it this way, having been justified by faith, already done, we have peace. Because we have been justified, uh, as the, uh, the great uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we are not looking for it. We are not hoping to get it. We have it. I love that. We have it. We have got it. And we rejoice in it. He continues, there is no more thorough test of our profession of Christianity than just this. Are we enjoying this peace with God? We have it. So let me ask. Do you sometimes still fret in your prayers? You wonder, does God love me right now? Can I be truly acceptable to God? Are you able to pray, actually believing that you can approach God as your Father, humbly but confidently, honest to lay your cares and needs before Him, believing by faith that He cares for you, that He will do good to you? Or do you tend to be sheepish, hoping that you've done enough lately? Or hoping you've been good enough so that he might hear your requests. 
Do you enjoy and rejoice in the reality that you have peace with God? The woman or man who is growing in this is the one who is able to rest in the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. This is the one that gets me often to be reminded that in Christ, my heavenly Father is pleased with me. Even in my shortcomings, I can be sure that Christ, because Christ is righteous, because He was raised to new life, because He was raised for my justification, I can rest in that. Now, one more caveat about peace with God. There's a caution I'd like to give, and I'm going to borrow from uh, one more smarter person than me, J.C. Ryle. He says this, You can subscribe to the truth and give an intellectual assent to it, meaning you can get it up here. I, I understand it. And yet not really be saved by it. There are men who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. This is a false peace, he says. The person with a false peace is generally found to be resting on his or her faith rather than on Christ and his work. They really look at their own believing rather than at Christ and what he has done. They're not looking to Christ. They're looking to their own faith and they turn faith into a kind of work on which they rest. I read that and I went, ouch. (laughs) Right? It's not faith in faith, not in our ability to believe. Faith that Christ is perfect. Faith that he's the one who carried my sin, that he pays my debt, that he died and was buried, and that he rose again conquering death. And that his death for sin and his resurrection are mine by faith in him. This is a true and lasting peace. And notice, it's not the absence of doubt. It's confidence in weakness. It's not sinless perfection in this life, but assurance of the Spirit's work of conviction, of sanctification, that I am actually being changed. It's not merely a fear of hell or or, or just a desire to be forgiven, but a deep and growing desire to pursue holiness and righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have a true and lasting and sure peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer his enemies. We are his beloved children and co-heirs with Christ. That is a slice of what it means to have peace with God. Romans 5 goes on, verse 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him... Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have two things Paul outlines here. One, we have peace with God. And two, we have access to God's grace. Again, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? This is a big deal. See, if we truly have peace with God, We don't need to fear coming to him, right? If he has accomplished all that's necessary to rescue us and save us, then the access we have to God as our Father is just grace. It's icing. It's 
bonus for us. The delight that God the Father has in the Son now extends to you. The Father cannot turn his face from his children because to do so would be to deny the sufficiency of Christ's work. Let me say that again. The Father cannot turn away from his own children because if he does, then he's saying, well, the work that Jesus did wasn't enough. And that's objectively not true. See, Jesus came to us, drew us in, welcomes us into the fold. We are part of the family now. We have access. Jesus makes it clear that he will always maintain his hold on his own. Not one, not one will slip from his hand. He says as much in John chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. John chapter 10, Jesus again, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we stand in this grace, Paul says, that was won for us and guaranteed by Christ Jesus. So not only do we have access to the inner workings, if you will, but Paul says we stand in grace. What does it mean to stand in it? In part, I think it means this, that our position before God is firm. There is, remember for us, Romans chapter 8, no condemnation. It also means we will stand all the way to the end. We'll persevere to the end, for we shall suffer no inglorious defeat. To live in this life is Christ, and to die is gain, Paul says. There is no losing. We can't lose. Our condition is stable, because in this life we build on a rock rather than on sand. And our position as sons and daughters, our royal privilege is a permanent privilege. Because His grace does not change. The oath, the promise, and the unchangeable love of God secures us. We can stand there. See, all who belong to Christ stand in this grace. And Christ Himself guarantees that all those who are really His, all those who belong to Him, will stand. And it is as we stand that we prove that we are really His own. Again, Charles Spurgeon writes, this is how grace works. It enters the soul, penetrates the heart, saturates the conscience, abides in the memory, affects the affections, gives understanding to the understanding, and imparts real life to the heart, which is the seat of life. We have access through Christ that is the result of his glorious resurrection from the dead, that he was raised for our justification, which now obtains for us peace with God and access to this kind of grace in which we stand. Now we think of grace that saves us, and we should. Yes. Not by our works, not by our own merit, 
because we tried harder or are smarter than someone else. No, no. Our salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we stand in that grace, meaning God's grace is at work in us by the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us, transforming us from old to new. It is grace at work by the Holy Spirit, changing our desires, giving us eyes to see and hearts to confess our sin and, and, and to, to lay down the old self that remains. It's grace at work by the Holy Spirit to change our desires, to, to want holiness, to want righteousness. It's grace at work by the Holy Spirit which gives us courage to hold fast to God's Word in the face of a culture that is increasingly hostile to it. And it's grace at work in us by the Holy Spirit which empowers us not only to courage, but also to compassion and to humility so that we're able to speak the truth in love, that we're able to share the gospel, the hope we have with others, with passion, not only striving to win the argument, but to strive after to win the heart. It is grace at work in us by the Holy Spirit that enables us to endure remarkable hardships and terrible loss and through tears confess with full and honest belief that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That that God is always working all things together for our good. That nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To actually believe those things. This is grace at work in us. Jesus was raised for our justification and through him we have access to this grace in which we stand. And this death for our transgressions and this resurrection for our justification is crowned with Glory. We'll close here. Chapter 5, verse 2 at the end. And we rejoice, Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God. God is glorified in Christ's payment of sin, uh, payment for sin on the cross. And God is glorified, meaning He's given the glory and honor He deserves in the justifying power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And God is glorified in our weakness as we stand in grace, as we are strengthened and sustained by His power. And the treasure of God's grace is given to us in, given to us in clay pots, jars of clay, to prove that the power of God belongs to Him and not to us. And God is glorified as he fulfills his promise to bring us, his children, all the way home. We rejoice in the hope that God will be glorified in our lives as we are hidden in Christ. And that we rejoice in the hope that God will be glorified when Christ comes again to put all his enemies under his feet and welcome his spotless bride from every tribe and tongue and language and people, all with one voice praising God and enjoying his presence as citizens of his eternal kingdom forever. He'll receive that glory as well. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We opened our time this morning reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read it again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I were delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. A little further on in that chapter, Paul continues, verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Meaning Christ's death wasn't enough, apparently. Verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope is only here in the tangible, we are the most pitiful. But, verse 20, in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus is not merely a once-each-year date on the calendar at Easter. It is a central anchor to everything we believe. See, we are no longer God's enemies. We are secure. We are at peace with Him. We have access now that we did not have before to grace which saved us and is sanctifying us and we stand in it. We live there. And we have hope in the glory of God to come. So let me encourage you this morning. If you've been trusting in your own ability, your own goodness, can I just encourage you to release your grip on that? To surrender your life to Christ. You can never do enough to make up for your sin. Only his death can cover that. You cannot secure for yourself enough security or knowledge to settle your fears or satisfy your desires. Only Christ's resurrection has the power to strengthen you in your weakness, give you confidence in your uncertainty, and to sustain you. I plead with you, Be reconciled to God. Believe in Jesus Christ and taste freedom from shame. And taste eternal life. If that's you today, we'd love to pray with you. To pray for you and encourage you as you begin to walk in this new life in Christ. Apparently, if you're wearing a vest today, uh, which some of the staff all realized we all unintentionally wore vests. um, If you see someone with a vest, there's a few other people. So uh, I don't want to point some people out and make them feel awkward. Although I just did. Um... But if you have, a, if you have, you can talk to someone with a vest, and they'd love to tell you about Jesus. Uh, I guess is what I was going to say. Um, and if you're like, please don't talk to me, uh, maybe just take the vest off, carry it on your way out. But if that's you, if this is your normal mo of just being in charge of your own life, can I just encourage you just to give that up? We'd love to talk to you about that. And for you, sister and brother in Christ Jesus this morning, my prayer for myself and for us is that our vision would be renewed. That our eyes, which maybe have become dull or dim or heavy, would be clear. That we would remember again that Christ was pierced for our transgressions and raised to new life to secure our justification. 
As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is true of all those who belong to Jesus. That the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. As we close this morning, let me just give you one more quote from the great uh, Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, on the glory of the resurrection. He says, But courage, believer, your body shall rise again. Laid in the earth it may be, but kept in the earth it cannot be. The voice of nature bids you die, but the voice of the omnipotent bids you live again. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your majesty, that there is none like you. We praise you for your mercy. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of the cross and the glory of the empty tomb, that we would know the power of the resurrection, that in Christ we are are forgiven, that we have peace with God, that we no longer bear any condemnation, that in Christ we are justified, made right, and we are welcomed into the kingdom as beloved children. Holy Spirit of God, work in us that we might stand in the grace of God, courageous and humble, with conviction and compassion. Make us agents of mercy and heralds, messengers of the gospel. Strengthen us where we're weak, that we might glorify you, that we might have much hope. Give us eyes to see the glory of God in Jesus and give us hope in the glory yet to be revealed. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen and amen.